Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Bessner and Matt Chrisman about their new podcast miniseries, Hinge Points. Yeah, uh, don't tell Marshall, but I'm taking a few liberties here and doing a podcast about podcasts, uh, like a coffee table book about coffee tables, uh, something like that. Um, and I want to do this because Hinge Points is about some major what-ifs in world history. Um, Matt Chrisman is best known for his work on Chapo Trap House, a political humor and cultural commentary podcast. He also posts almost daily vlogs where he reflects on history. And he has co-authored the Chapo Guide to Revolution with his fellow Chapo Trap House hosts. Daniel Bessner, an intellectual historian of U.S. foreign relations, is the author of Democracy in Exile, Hans Speyer, uh, not, not Hans Speer, right? Hans, Hans Speyer. Hans Speyer, yeah. Hans Speyer, um, and the rise of the, national, uh, rise of the defense intellectual out with Cornell in 2018, and was co-editor with Nicholas uh, Guillaume of The Decisionist Imagination, Sovereignty, Social Science, and Democracy in the 20th Century out with Bergen in 2019. He holds the Jeff Hauer Honors, excuse me, Joff Hanauer Honors Professorship <laughs> in Western Civilization. Boy, that's a Western Civilization name right there. Yeah, it's a hell, um, it's a hell of a, a hell of a named professorship, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. Uh, at the University of Washington, he's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a contributing editor at Jacobin. Um, in 2019, 2020, he also served as a foreign policy advisor to the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. In addition to all of his scholarly work, he's published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and other venues. Daniel Bessner also hosts the American Prestige podcast with uh, David Davison, which I strongly recommend uh, in addition uh, Derek, to Joppa. Derek Davison. I jokingly I so call sorry. him David Davison a lot, but it's Derek. Derek. It's Derek. I, yeah. I apologize. I apologize. It's okay. Well, let me see if I get this one right. Daniel Bessner and Matt Chrisman. Welcome to Chapo. Or, <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Welcome to New Books in History. Oh boy, uh, fanboy fail hard. Oh, full Chris Farley moment right there for me. Okay, <laughs> Welcome to New Books in History. Thanks for having us, Thanks man. For having us. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Matt is the returning champion. Uh, got to talk him to him about the Chapo Guide to Revolution. Um, I don't know, about a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a fun conversation. It's in the archive, listeners. Look it up. Um, before we talk about the, the podcast miniseries Hinge Points, tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, how you came to host a history podcast. Daniel, you go first. Uh, sure. Danny, you go first. Yeah, yeah. Well, no problem. I mean, well, first off, uh, I'm a historian. Um, and, you know, for a long time, I'd been listening to, to Chapo, and I'd been just really impressed with Matt's thinking. Um, in particular, the way that he... 
Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not just like blowing smoke. I think it's interesting because it says something about the modern historical profession. I, Matt does a type of like big brain thinking, big macro thinking that is just not allowed in a historical profession that is increasingly specialized, um, that increasingly for, forces one to like, uh, you know, the, the division of labor, as Mark said, everything becomes increasingly specialized. And so you're focused on ever narrow topics. But, you know, I'm someone who studies pre-war intellectual history and, and World War II. Um, um, and in just immediate post-war history. And there used to be a space for this type of thinking. So I've always been attracted to that type of like very big Alfred Thayer Mahan type thinking in some sense, even an Oswald Spenglerian type approach, you know, Spengler had his problems. Don't get me wrong, but this sort of big thinking. And I think, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, Matt is really one of the, 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 most interesting historical minds doing historical work today that you can't really do in the academy. And so I was always attracted to that. And then he and I just became friends and we started having these, I, I think, fun conversations. And, and just it, it emerged very organically from that, from just having conversations about, you know, big historical questions, counterfactual reasoning, um, big what ifs. I think uh, Matt and I were both Harry Turtledove fans as kids. And so this is something that we've been thinking about for, for years. And I think it really just developed from there. Okay, well, um, actually, actually, Matt, I got a, I got a follow up for Danny. Um, so you have a day job, um, as a professor, how do you balance your, um, more, uh, academic work with your more, uh, I don't know, f- public facing scholarship or, or more popular work? Um, and, and, I don't know. Um, how do you, how do you feel that's valued in the academy or, or sure? Not? Well, I think my department is unique. I'm not in a his, history department, and I think that's crucial. Um, <laughs> I don't think the type of work that I do, which is relatively methodologically traditional intellectual history, which is not especially popular, um, uh, combined with another unpopular field, diplomatic history, uh, slash, you know, the history of military thought, which is really what I do, the intellectual history of uh, diplomatic and military thinking, um, is not exactly a hot topic in history departments right now, which is, you know, fine, things go up and down, whatever. Um, So first of all, I'm not in a history department. And so I'm in a, a department of international studies, that really values that sort of public engagement. So that's been my first and only um, academic job. And from the beginning, they really um, encourage that sort of work, that sort of public facing work. Um, I, it's also something that I've always wanted to do. I mean, I grew up reading the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Book Review. So I was always interested in that sort of more, more popular thinking that you could get at in an essay. And I also do think that this is something we as a profession haven't fully addressed, which is that reading habits have fundamentally changed. People just read fewer books. I, and you really see that in, in the decline of the novel since the, look at 1985 readership numbers compared to 2021. It's precipitous. Um, And we as a profession haven't uh, addressed that at all. And I I do think, you know, that that certain types of communication flourish in particular moments. And I do think that right now we are in the era of the uh, essay and the era of the podcast. So as someone who never was interested in writing only for a small cohort of scholars, um, and this has become even more true given that the history profession is essentially dying. I don't think we're going to see future generations of historians in a genuine way unless there's a radical exogenous change. Um, uh, I became less and less interested in only writing for the academy, even though I still do that because uh, the genre of academic writing it, it does allow for a form of long-term long form, thinking unavailable elsewhere. Um, but I was always interested in speaking to the public, and so I, I basically gravitated relatively naturally toward the two forms of public engagement that are dominant today. Again, the essay and the podcast. 
Yeah. Well, I, I would uh, add to that. I think there's a, a, a trifecta. There's also the, this is also the age of the graphic history where yes, the graphic, format, I'm waving my book at the screen right now, where the graphic format actually uh, is being taken seriously and is, is being explored as a way to communicate some really sophisticated ideas to a wider audience without, without necessarily pandering, uh, pandering down. But yeah, I appreciate that. Hey, Matt, I'm sorry. I interrupted you earlier. What's, um, give us some origin story where, uh, wh- where did Matt Christman history podcaster come from? Huh. Uh, I mean, it started with me, you know, reading all of the time life civil war books. And I was like 12, <laughs> <laughs> but more approximately it was, meeting Danny and becoming friends and realizing that we had uh, similar interests in, in like thinking about history uh, in, in terms of it's like broader contours and, uh, and, and, and a similar conviction that we're living like sort of in the corpse of a human uh, social concept that we have, that is still sort of operates off of a zombie logic, but has lost its anima. Uh, and that looking backward and, and finding uh, <laughs> contingent uh, moments uh, is not just fun Harry Turtledove stuff, which we both loved, but also uh, I think a critical component of, of performing like an essentially an autopsy uh, on a certain like vision for human flourishing that is now just uh, accumulating fatal contradictions at a, at a geogra- geological rate. So uh so we decided to uh to put some stuff down in it and it came very easily and i i think it's it's some pretty interesting conversations yeah i mean how do you, how do you see your role as um i don't know a, do do i want to say popularizer or communicator of you know some high level historical and uh theoretical you're very heavily influenced by marxist theory um but some high level discourses to an audience that um, may not, you know, wouldn't have picked up the American historical review or picked up a monograph or picked up a, even maybe even a more popular history textbook. Um, I mean, you've got, you, you have a certain charisma, you're good on a microphone, you got a fun way of explaining stuff. It's, it's thoughtful and engaging. I mean, how do you, how do you see that role? I mean, it, wait, wait, I don't know what to call it. I mean, public intellectual. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you, I don't know what I'm asking. How do you conceive of yourself and what you're doing with these kinds of history podcasts? Well, I'm, I'm obviously like, unlike Danny and, and yourself, I am not credentialed in, in any kind of uh, historical discipline. I am uh, really just a guy. So mm-hmm. what I bring to the conversation really is an understanding, hopefully that like, that this is, not the same thing as like academic historic history. This is not the same. I mean, the word discipline, for example, uh, is apt because there isn't any in, in what I do. <laughs> uh, but what I hope fills that gap is, as Danny said, a willingness to go to sort of stratospheres of analysis that, that historians at this point are basically disallowed to do from doing. Uh, and also, yes, uh, making it more conventionally entertaining uh, and also more easily digestible because of the podcast format uh, than history usually is. But yeah. I, I, I do hope that uh, I'm able to communicate 
uh, enough personal earnestness, I guess, to uh, make people at least, if they don't like necessarily take me for, take what I'm saying for granted as they shouldn't, uh, they at least accept that I'm I'm trying I'm I'm genuinely trying to more than anything figure something out for myself that they can you know come along and 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 hopefully follow my train of thinking uh, and talking to Danny and, and having like a, a dialogue allows a lot of ideas for both of us to sort of spring up and and uh, hopefully people can follow both of us towards conclusions that make them think about history uh, in a new way. That That's that's the hope. Yeah, no, I, I think that's definitely part of your your sort of podcast persona charisma. Um, this, this like really sincere um, communication of like tr- trying to struggle through making meaning of the present and how the past created this present and, and bringing the audience into that and um, in a really honest and genuine way. I mean, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't feel contrived or or anything like that, but it's like this. And 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 Alice, I think it's really um, really lovely the way that you're able to um, make some pretty high concept pieces from Marxist theory uh, accessible and applicable. And like, oh well, that's that's how that plays out. Um, so could you could you guys tell us um, about the premise of Hinge Points? Uh, maybe that's given away in the title. Uh, is billed as a what if discussion, but I think it, it, it's it's much more than just sort of you know what if or counterfactual history because you really get into the historical context. Um, I'm real curious about how you guys um, sort of balance contingency with an appreciation of larger structures. Um, you know, you're both well-versed in Marxist theory and that that will, that will lead you away from the great man in history, but the whole notion of a hinge point, you know, shades towards that great man in history, making the decision. So, um, how how do you, how do you balance these two? Um, Danny, please. Sure. So I think the, the first thing we do is we just go extraordinarily deep on the hinge point that we're examining. We really play it out, um, provide context for the situation that we're exploring, um, provide the larger structural situation in which a particular um, issue was operating. So the thing that we have coming out today is on the German revolutions of 1918 and 1919. So we give context for those revolutions, why they occurred, um, what was the reason, and literally um, the larger structural reasons why they occurred. And then we'll talk about, you know, the keel sailors and the literal historical actors who made a particular moment. So I think deep contextualization is the way we approach it um, at first, that we, we try to give a sense of the historical moment. And it's from there that we're able to uh, identify the various interactions between structure and agency, which is the, the classic historical question. And, and I think that if there's one thing that we hope um, people to take from this and that people will take from this, I think, is focusing on that problem because, you know, Marx really emphasizes structure um, and uh, historians really emphasize agency and bringing that perspective together. So having done that deep contextualization, then we start focusing on, you know, the what ifs. And I think the counterfactual reasoning is actually very critical to historical reasoning because you're ultimately telling a causal story. Um, I think the historical method is to use narrative to make a causal claim. Um, And there's a great historian's quote, I don't actually know where it originated, but it essentially argues that every time a 
historian uses the word because they're making a causal claim. And I think that's right. So um, by engaging in that sort of counterfactual reasoning, we're able to highlight what we consider to be the most crucial causal factors in explaining a particular hinge point. Uh, and I think in at least this first miniseries, without planning it, um, I, three of our six episodes focus on the period between 1914 and 1920, 1921, because we uh, we really adopted a lefty approach on this one. So we're trying to explain like why the left in the United States seems to be in such a, a ragged political uh, condition. Uh, and so I think that's broadly the theme of um, the first few um, episodes. But, but the point being is highlighting the contingent elements in order to understand how we came to be, but also to try to, at least in my opinion, help contemporary people on the left think about where power lies, where agency lies, where they should direct their own energies, given what we know of the past and these crucial moments in left-wing history. Yeah. Um, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that, that balancing act? Yeah. Um, one thing that happened organically as we, did the show and and had the conversations is is we would often come to a point where we recognize well this is an incredibly important uh moment where where a shift occurs like and and a a new paradigm is is going to birthed that is going to end up uh over determining the historical process at that point that that sometimes you can't really plausibly imagine an alternative scenario. Like that's what happened when we talked about the 1918 German revolutions is we, we, there are a few theoretical, like a few like blue sky things that we could imagine and change changing that could have led to a different outcome. But, but our, our main uh, uh, conclusion was that, that the specific uh, dynamics in Germany meant that it was, highly unlikely that anything other than uh, a a failure to coordinate and effectively act would uh, thwart the revolutions there. Uh, but in other cases, that's not necessarily true. But uh, we ground it, I guess, and prevent it from being sort of turtle dovian fancy by really uh, take, taking seriously the idea of, uh, of structure and, and, the overdeterminants of of structural causes and not allowing ourselves to sort of go go uh with a fancy although i think that that's going to change if in future episodes we go further in the past because i think one thing that danny and i agree with is that in that dance between uh structure and contingency the further back you back the more uh, uh agency and contingency can factor into decisions and and the greater the uh, the the angle of uh, departure is, if you imagine a, a contingent event going differently, is that because um, economic structures were simpler in pre-industrial times, and as we go further back into past, that you know, Alexander it's, having it's, a, a wanderlust is m more important than the the Athenian oil industry. I, or, I, I think it's technology. Yeah. I think it's the degree of technological uh uh structure the, the technological uh uh the technological uh 
structure of society, I guess, just the, the degree of technology that stands between uh, individuals and, and uh, actions, basically. The, the, the degree to which uh, state structures and political economies are dictated technologically. Uh, and because the, the more space is filled with technology, in real sense, the less room there is for human agency. I think that's also really important to emphasize because the history of technology is really fallen out as a professional historical field. Um, and I think that historians today have totally lost sight of the important role that technology plays in things like human alienation, like Matt is just gesturing toward. Um, and I think I was unique. Um, my my One of my advisors, uh, basically my co-advisor, though not officially, was an old, old school historian who, who, you know, got his PhD in 1970 or 71 in the history of technology. So as part of my comms fields, I read a lot in the history of technology and, and the um, science and technology studies. And I think this is a, a problem with the historical profession as a whole, which kind of takes technology as a given. Uh, and then any time that one makes an argument about the determining role that technology plays in social life, which is so obvious in our daily lived experience, to be almost unquestionable, you get accused of being an object-oriented ontologist. Yeah. Um, so I think there's actually, ironically, as technology has become so dominant in our lives and the structures of capitalism have become so dominant, the historical profession has almost um, put them in the background which is, you know, uh, ironic and problematic, and for a bunch of contingent historical reasons, uh, allowed that to happen. But I think one thing that we try to do in the show is recenter these enormous structures that uh, professional historians oftentimes ignore. Well, I gotta, I gotta tweet at you with an angry hashtag. Uh, not all historians, uh, <laughs> because I've, I'm working on empire and the history of pandemic disease in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's all about the technology. It's the railways. It's the steamships um, that uh, create the third bubonic plague pandemic and facilitate the cholera pandemics and so forth. So, so some of us, you know, not all historians. Some of us are uh, <laughs> haven't lost sight of that technology and that importance. Um, I guess, like what yeah. I, what I should say is when yeah. I when I say that I mean like the elite historical departments that shape the contours of the professional historical discipline. You know, I I don't think yeah. like Harvard or Yale or Princeton has a dedicated historian of technology, which was not true fifty years ago. You know, there would have been two or three. Um, and I think that that is sort of, I mean, people are doing interesting work all the time. It's just like where that work is situated within the constellation of the quote unquote profession. Yeah. And, and, and hiring processes are trendy um, and go through these, these phases for <laughs> reasons it's difficult for us to speculate about. Um, so the, the mini series topics uh, for this, for this season um, include the, the, f the first one that's already out that I listened to, the Social Democratic Party of Germany's decision to vote for war credits in 1914, which I thought was a really great discussion. I think you could have brought in some discussion of the French socialists and Jean Jaurès, but you know, I got a PhD in French history, so I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> um, the German Revolution of 1918-1919, and that, that's out today. Yes, uh, that's yes. Yeah. And then uh, Reconstruction and Lincoln's assassination, importance of 9-11, and the Soviet Revolution of 1917. Um, we don't have time to go through all of these, but um, I did notice that, as, as you pointed out, like half this miniseries is clustered around World War I. Um, could you talk about sort of the larger World War I, the larger Great War, and why this is um, 
as you say, a hinge point. But by the way, uh, thank you for that earworm of a theme song for the podcast. Um, I was driving around uh, yelling hinge points out of my truck from time to time. It is um, possibly one of the most relaxing songs I've heard recently. Um, That's awesome. It's, it's up there with Island it. Boys. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, That's when, an important uh, hinge point. Yeah. I just, we should shout out uh, our producer, Jake Aaron, and his band, Moloch, M O L O Q. Uh, they also do the American Prestige theme song, if anyone wants to check uh, his music out. Great. Great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, why World War I? Um, uh, what, what, why is this so significant? Why, why was it a hinge point? <laughs> Matt, you want to take this one or should I? Sure. Uh, I th- because I think Danny and I both agree that World War One was the the uh, the was the apocalypse that that Marx was predicting. The 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 uh, at least the beginning of a several decades long crisis in in specifically European capitalism uh, that was, uh, I think, t- in the teleological Marx uh, imagined to lead to the mobilization of the uh, European working class against uh, uh, the capitalist uh, overlordship. Uh, and for a bunch of reasons that we get into in uh, the episodes, that didn't happen. Uh, and because it didn't happen, and we were, and because the uh, one nation state that ended up being uh, uh, taken over by a self-conscious uh a working class movement in the form of the Bolsheviks uh, was uh, Russia, the least developed country in Europe uh, economically, as opposed to the more advanced economies of Western Europe that that uh, Marx saw. Marx was most uh, fixated on on detailing the contours of. Uh, it shaped the next century of class war, class conflict, uh, and the articulations of that. Uh, and we've seen the result, you know, we, we've seen that uh, now we, we stand sort of, as I said, in, in, in on the corpse of this movement where uh, there might still be uh, challenges to capitalism, but they're going to have to emerge out of a fully new terra because the, the, the classic conception of a, uh, of the working class movement, the socialist movement, uh, an international uh, movement based on solidarity of workers uh, is essentially non-existent at the moment, uh, and so we look back and and we I, if you identify this period and and World War One and the way that it concludes sort of being the first act really of like a three act uh, Ragnarok, but uh, <laughs> we find where. We, we're looking. We try to look for where things could have gone differently, realistically, plausibly, with with a few changes of of contingent outcomes, uh, and then what that could have opened up. Not necessarily made better, but but possibilities that were foreclosed by the way things ended up happening. Yeah, and and just to put a fine point on that, I, at least from my perspective, we are still living in the in the sort of overhang of that World War One moment, where the thing that was supposed to happen didn't, you know. And and I think that there's been a, a, a an essential 
crisis of Marxism since the failure of the working classes to um, uh, maybe perhaps an overdetermined failure, as we talked about in the first episode, but the failure to unite and, and do what they uh, were supposed to do. And, and it's interesting that people are, uh, in response to the uh, episode, I've noticed that people are pointing to this Engels quote, um, this letter from 1887, where he kind of predicts World War One. But it's interesting, they only quote the first half of that letter, and the second half is like, and this will mean the workers will win, you know? And so um, it's pretty... Uh, I think interesting when we think about why didn't that happen and what that meant. Yeah. And just to, to spell things out, um, what you're talking about is the, the pledge of the second international, the, uh, the organization of all the uh, socialist parties of, of Europe, that they would not go to war should war come, that uh, a coming war would be in the interests of the bankers and the industrialists and the crown heads of Europe, not in the interest of the working class. Right. They had, they had, yeah. All the socialist parties had agreed to this as, as, as and voted on it a couple of times at the Second International. And then when actually push comes to shove in the summer of 1914, as Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August start, uh, you know, to they're on the, the near horizon, the, the socialist parties actually vote for war credits after all. Um, what, um, you know, without uh, spoiling the episode, and, and I don't want to do any spoilers for these episodes. I know you got one on on Reconstruction, and I don't want to – don't tell me what happened because it seems like things <laughs> could, go, could go really good there. Um, but what, what are some of the key factors, um, you know, with that uh, that failure to live up to what the, the socialist parties had promised, uh, at least in terms of the, the German Social Democratic Party? Uh, Danny, do you want to address that? Um, so, do you mind restating your question? What what, yeah, what exactly are you asking? Why 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 didn't they um, uh, oh. live up to their promise and uh, that they had right. made prior to 1914? I think this is a this is probably one of the biggest questions, and and I think ultimately um, the reason is that they didn't identify more as workers than as other things. Um, and so the question is, what are those other things and why did they identify more as those? Um, so I, 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 the obvious answer is nationalism. And so there's a, a crucial element of nationalism. There, there's uh, elements of racism. Uh, there's elements of regionalism. There's elements of you know, communalism. They identify more with their community uh, than they do as workers. But the, 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 um, the way that I think about it is that Marx said, I mean, the whole thing is premised on when he's talking about subjective conditions, the proletariat becoming conscious of itself as the subject-object of history, as Lukash put it in Geschichte und Klassenbewusstsein, which I believe was written in 1919 or 21, maybe, tw- I think it's 21. But anyway, so like that didn't happen. So it's a question of consciousness also. And this is why I think you see the turn towards culture after the World War One, right? The Frankfurt School gets going in the 1920s as essentially incorporating a critique of culture and psychoanalysis, a critique of mind into the traditional Marxist material analysis. So I think that's why, right? And then there's a million possible answers as to why working class identity didn't become the foundational uh, political identity um, that one could explore. And then there's also just the fact that that, that, that there was, as, as Matt will no doubt speak to, there were a lot of, you know, um, interest groups militating against that sort of uh, identity formation. You know, uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do across borders when you're speaking different languages um, in the absence of like regular communications and lived experiences. Um, so I I think that that's essentially the major reason why it didn't happen, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And th- there's also a level, and you touched on this in the podcast, of the, the institutionalization, uh, sp- at least of the German Social Democratic Party, which 
I think uh, stands in sharp contrast to the French socialists who are much more fractured, much less bureaucratic. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I scolded you guys a second ago, but I, I think a really good uh, discussion would, would be, um, you know, what if uh, Jean Jaurès had not been assassinated hmm. um, in, in the streets of Paris in, in the summer of 1914? Because uh, he, he seems, at least, definitely in France, and then possibly Europe-wide could have that so my take charisma. on that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm also European. I mean, my my major field is modern European. I just don't think France had the industrial structure of a Germany, and that's a really big difference when you're talking about working class revolution. I mean, Germany is really the industrial heartland. In a way that France, from my understanding, was still there's still a lot of artisans, there's still a lot of small craft workshops. It's not as much of an industrialized base. Yeah, and the socialist movement in France was a hot mess. I mean, they were and very different, so you know, factualized. I mean, kind of Marxist, not yeah. Marxist. Yeah, but in such contrast to Germany, but the, but could also in that crazy wild ferment actually pr- produce a really charismatic figure like Jean Jaurès. Um, and that's, that's why like a Sorel is French, you know, like yeah. he's dealing with different continents. That's why anarcho syndicalism is not a German thing. You know, Germany, there's actually enough of an industrial base to have the classic Marxist um, thing going on. And I think yeah. France is appreciably different. So I don't think that would have been enough for like the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the contours, the future of world socialism, though it is an interesting what if, if the yeah. German and French working classes had united. But um, yeah, that's my take on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt, what, what, um, what are your key sort of uh, talking points on uh, the failure of the second international? Uh, I think uh, the, that, that institutionalization of the party is, is a, is a very significant uh, feature because, uh, to be effective, a working class uh, movement of any kind has to have some sort of structure of, of leadership to effectively distribute, you know, uh, resources and and to coordinate action. Uh, but the the paradox of building working class institutional power is that once you have institutions staffed by in, uh, people, those p- people no longer live working class lives. <laughs> they no longer have the subjective experience of being a worker uh, that the uh, masses of the party have. They uh, live effectively bourgeois uh, existences, uh, and that changes. I I argue, I would argue that fundamentally changes the uh, decision matrix and the uh, the the motivational framework of someone within a structure like that because. They no longer only have their chains to lose. They have their nice office job and <laughs> and a life that is, according to every uh, social uh, reality that they encounter every day, that is convivial and uh, and relatively pleasant. And and the, a communist future would fundamentally threaten th- and replace them with with something that they would be unfamiliar with and maybe not be in charge of and very well could be uh, in some real felt sense a uh, a reduction of circumstances yeah yeah um so we, I mean you, you guys got a whole hour on this um, encourage listeners to check it out obviously um, um, 
but you, as I said, you've, you've got, um, three, uh, podcasts centering around, uh, first world war one issues, the sort of dawn of the 20th century making of, you know, the, the contemporary world. Um, but you also, um, go to into American history. You've got, uh, an episode on reconstruction. What are some of the, the big themes you engage in there? And again, no spoilers. Cause I was, uh, trained as a Europeanist and a Southeast Asianist. I don't know anything <laughs> about American history, but, well, uh. Thank, I mean, I, I was first in the foremost, early 1870s. <laughs> I, I was first and foremost a Civil War nerd as a child. That's what got me into history, and and so uh, the Civil War in general has been a longstanding fixation on me. Not not alone in that; it's very common among American uh, history dorks. Uh, so uh, my understanding of of the Civil War is an incredibly important crucible for creating uh, our modern American state uh has always been very uh keen but uh, over time i've you know as many people have noticed how deeply are embedded contradictions and and specifically the things that have retarded our uh, development of socialist politics development of working class consciousness are really the product of a uh the failed reconstruction process after the civil war, uh, not just in reconstruct, I would argue not just in restructuring Southern society, but in restructuring our, uh, instant, our governing institutions. Uh, there's no, there's no, uh, reason, no, there is no, you cannot make an, an, an argument, uh, based on like rationality, why the constitution should have survived the end of the civil war. Uh, the Constitution was constitutional order was designed to prevent specifically the kind of catastrophic breakup that the Civil War uh, embodied. Uh, and over the course of the war, one thing that was revealed is that la- if you lack institutional uh, buy-in to these uh, these hallowed notions of of separation of power, uh, th- there is no uh, there is no force backing them. And that uh, if you are going to replace, uh, you know, a, a slave economy uh, with with a fulfilled popular democracy, then its institutions need to reflect that. But that didn't happen for a number of reasons. And uh, one of the most intriguing things about Reconstruction, from my perspective, uh, as opposed to you know the question of the German Revolution, is that I think you really can imagine not a completely different outcome not not you know we have uh, full communism if if this doesn't happen but you can imagine a different united states that that responds to world history historical uh actions differently uh if you do not have uh, at the very crucial transition point from war to reconstruction abraham lincoln replaced by andrew johnson uh and so we go through just exactly how specifically and personally responsible Johnson is for some of the worst failures of Reconstruction, which I think is significant, and then imagine what a a different constellation of forces at the top of the government at a moment when the United States government is uh, able to assert power that had previously been impossible to conceive of it doing, uh, and what that would have meant for the future of the country. The alternative yeah, future I, of the country. Yeah, but, um, but even even with Johnson, 
as uh and and then after he's he's gone i mean the 1870s seems like there's going to be a sea change in the united states you know you you have african americans voting you have a huge number in in state and national winning state and national elections and then and then comes 1877 right i mean then right. then that comes coming down but that 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 you know six seven year period of you know in hindsight tremendous optimism like things are being reconstructed Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, so here's, here's my full confession. I, I, I had zero interest in American history as an undergraduate and graduate school because I was, I was a victim of the bad American history class in high school, right? It just, it, it, it seems so boring to me. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I was teaching summer school in Shanghai that I got signed to us history class that I had to, had to read up on this stuff. And, um, it, I never really understood until um, I should admit this just just a few years ago how significant things how, how significantly different the country could have gone in terms of its trajectory in terms of who's in political office in the 1870s and what that could have developed organically. I mean, those numbers aren't replicated again until what the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. And, even... and there was a civil rights act. I was about that to mention was, that. Yeah, uh, passed. <laughs> Uh, you know, in in um, in watered down form, and then struck down by the Supreme Court uh, in this period, that was essentially uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s in, in its particulars. Like that, that was a live political uh, 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 agenda with with an actual constituency that was competing for power at the time. And I do think that that with different headwinds from the top, that those uh, contours change well it, i don't know i'm just an amateur here but to me you know what this sounds like mm. a hinge point <laughs> Indeed. it absolutely is and and also i just as as a french historian i mean you know how unique it is that the united states is still living off its constitution from the late 18th century we're on like the oh, yeah. fifth french republic the fifth republic and, <laughs> you know and, 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 so and a couple of weird. empires and then and a quasi-fascist regime thrown in the mix <laughs> yeah so it's the the u.s is weird in in that it's exceptional <laughs> in, in that in that regard well you, you know it was given to us by uh by Jesus, by Jesus himself, <laughs> he yeah. came down that that incredible Republican painting. Um, um, I I got to be cognizant of time here. I'd love to chat with you guys forever. Um, but quickly, um, going to do an episode on nine eleven. Um, is this history yet? Can can we actually do this history? Is this is this journalism? Is this history? Um, well, I think the way we approach nine eleven is pretty. It's not what you expect because it focuses a lot on on culture, actually, in media, oh, cool. yeah. and how nine eleven was this hinge point for how we, uh, as a populace, experienced an event. So I think that episode is pretty cool because we don't just do the like normal what one might expect from an alternate 9-11 history, but we really examine how it's a hinge point in, in sort of the subjective experience of politics, which I think Matt and I agree um, is really a lot of people's only experience with politics yeah, today, right. the simulacrum of, of, of political experience. And so we really focus on that angle in the 9-11 episode. And I think people will, will find that um, pretty interesting, I hope. Okay. Well, that, that, that sounds fabulous. Um, are you guys going to do a second season? Are there going to be? Are, are there more hinge points out there? We, uh, I think we're, we're. I mean, we have enough ideas. We, 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 and and things we'd like to talk about that I think we we likely will. Yeah, I would like. I would like to do a whole Napoleon episode, just or like a couple. different. Yeah, we were different thinking places of doing a couple, that. Yeah. Uh, 
little corporal could have thrown the ways he could have thrown the dice and make things differently. Uh, but also I'd, I'd like to, you know, get deep, deeper past and where it's like, I think be more whimsical really, because at that point, you know, you're, you're, you can really throw anything at the board, as I said, because everything feels a lot more, even if it is it really, it feels more malleable. Yeah, I think like we'd like to do some Roman history ones, some medieval ones. We'd like to expand by, beyond the North Atlantic. Um, so I think it depends if people like the show and we get a good response. I, we're, we're certainly able to do more and uh, hopefully yeah. we'll, we will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how um, how up uh, you guys are on Chinese history, but Zheng He, the great uh, admiral of the Ming Dynasty, you know, <laughs> what the if he ha- fleet. his yeah. fleet had not been scuttled? I mean, right. good Lord, what what would the Gama have done uh, sailing into the Indian Ocean uh, had one of Zheng He's 440-foot uh, uh, treasure ships just, you know, appeared and blown them out of the water? I mean, it was just such a radical uh, rethinking. Um, so you guys have been really generous with your time and, um, I've got two more questions, um, for both of you. Um, first, uh, can you suggest two books or seeing how we're kind of, we've got a little Colonel Kurtz here and gone up the river, um, maybe two podcasts, whoa, (laughs) um, that you would, uh, suggest to the listeners. Um, Danny? Um, so for books, I think the classic one on the German revolutions is Eberhard Kolb's book, um, which is a, you know, a really excellent book. I mean, it's a l- written in a bit of an old style, but I think it's quite good and, and people might not be familiar with it. And also I think it's the, is it the Carl Shorsky book, The Great Schism? That's actually a really readable, yes, Carl Shorsky, German Social Democracy, 1905 to 1917, uh, The Development of the Great Schism. It's also an old one, but it's really readable. And uh, I, I really uh, point people towards those two to, if they want to get a better sense of the first two episodes. Great. Is there, is there is there one history podcast that you'd really recommend uh, aside from Hinge Points, of course? Um, aside from new books, uh, let's give that let's give that to Matt. My my history okay. content is is uh, mostly in in my professional life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's he's the credentialed one. He he does the reading. I just do the listening because uh, I don't I don't have class in the morning. Uh, <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have a stack of papers you have to grade. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I am a, I'm a big fan of Mike Duncan's Revolutions. Yeah, uh, I do. I think that's a great narrative history. Like, there's not necessarily, you know, a, a ton of uh, interpretive stuff, but I feel yeah. like if you are someone who is doesn't know what happened about stuff, like the details, uh, yeah, and, did you, and the, it, did you have him reading on? Can feels like it might. Uh, yeah, we had him on. Yeah, we had him on uh, Chopo, that was a good like combo. Eight, a couple years yeah, yeah, ago, right? We, yeah, yeah, uh, it was a good combo. But I feel like he's a, a good source for uh, a narrative. Of, of like crucial historical hinge points that uh, gives you at the very least a, a very good uh, sense of the players and the uh, the forces array, uh, which is, I think, very useful. Uh, and I think Patrick Wyman's stuff is uh, very good, too. Uh, the Tides of History. That's a good that's a good podcast. Tides of History. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've 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 been loving um, your former colleagues uh, work with. Um, uh, of course, I'm drawing a blank. Blank now. Um, they did the uh, a blowback. Blowback. Oh yes, blowback. Oh, yes, is great. blowback. Is great. Yeah. Second really season great. Uh, has been phenomenal. On Cuba, right? Second season's on Cuba. First season was on the Iraq War. Yeah. Um, I I th- I thought that was like just fantastic. Um, 
uh, well-researched, but very, very accessible. Um, I, I love their blend of uh, humor and some cheekiness with, with some really serious content. Yeah, they're really good journalists. I think like yeah. that is uh that is just that that podcast in particular, both Noah and Brendan, uh, just really shows what journalists could bring that professional historians can't. You yeah. know, a sense of storytelling, a sense yeah. of, of uh, excitement and adventure, and I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matt, what are you working on now? What um what can we hope to see from you next? Uh, uh, so, uh, my uh, Pet Chapo editor Chris Wade and I. Uh, just finished uh, a Stitcher podcast uh, called Hell of Presidents about American his- presidential history. Uh, and we're, I'm in the, we're in the early stages. It'll probably not come out till next year. Uh, uh, like probably like maybe the summer of next year uh, of for, for doing a uh, 30 years war uh, podcast. Uh, that's going to be about sort of history uh, or about Europe the the forces sort of uh, vying for power in early modern Europe and and the and the how the ground of those conflicts uh, sowed the rise of capitalism specifically English capitalism uh, so that that's going to be the the next thing. Cool. No, it's an yeah. interesting yeah. hinge point, Matt. Like the Armada wins. And I'm honestly the Spanish yes. form of capitalism <laughs> I was we could takes do that over. One. Yeah, because that would be a that fun was, one. There was a lot of ships, folks. <laughs> there were a lot of ships. Um, Danny, what are you? What are you working on? Uh, I've got a couple of academic things coming out on the Rand Corporation. Uh, oh, cool. I've got a essay collection that'll probably come out soon. I'm co-editing a volume on Cold War liberalism. I'm co-editing a volume on the domestic history of U.S. foreign policy, and then I'm going to start serious work on my. Uh, theoretically next academic book uh an imperial history of los angeles so all those things coming that's fantastic um yeah i think it'll be fun for years i've been i've been saying someone should do a similar project for san francisco because you know the so so much of the pacific empire is run out of san francisco and and place names just just from the american occupation of the philippines there's so many streets named after generals and whatnot um yeah, no, I think they're totally related. And then if that works, then I might do a bigger California thing because I, I really do think much more. I, I'm from New York. I do think having lived on the West Coast for a while that it, it is much more uh, the embodiment of the present American empire uh, than New York City and any other East Coast cities. So I, I want to explore that in a, in a bit of a more serious fashion. Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds like a great project. Um, I'm from Honolulu, so I get that. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you and Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I used to run into him when I was a kid. He was a little older than me. Um, he served me ice cream in, uh, oh, wow. in Baskin Robbins when he uh, when I was in elementary school. He was in high school. Um, uh, and, yeah, uh, if you uh, like your uh, chocolate jimmies, you can keep them. <laughs> and I, and I, I think we used to steal uh, cigarettes while he was playing basketball out of his thing, and we would use them as fuse as fuses to set off firecrackers uh from <laughs> secretary partying down on nice. public uh <laughs> public consumption my students know all about this um but he went to he went to my rival high school he went to punho uh, oh god whereas horrible Su- sun yat sen went to my high school oh nice yeah, they, <laughs> we got a real guy hey um matt and danny thank you so much for chatting with me i really appreciate it thanks, yeah, thanks for having us. uh love to come back yeah. So this has been a conversation with Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House and Daniel Besner of the University of Washington about their new podcast miniseries, 
hinge points. Um, hey, quickly, where where can people find hinge points? Uh, it is on your uh, the <laughs> Chapo Trap House Patreon page. Yeah, it's it's no extra charge if you're subscribing to the uh, to the bonus episodes. It's it's in there. But uh, if you just want to listen to it, it's also you can also get uh, bonus Chapo episodes. Okay, great. Sorry, I, I got to remember. I got to plug these things. So I'm <laughs> Michael Van of Sacramento State University. This has been an episode of New Books in History. Got it right this time. A channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>